from the book of Ephesians is how important relationships are, how important it is, how we connect with and get along with others. He calls the church the body of Christ. He calls it a building and a temple and emphasizes you need to find your place. You need to see where you fit. And what's best for you is going to also be what's best for everyone else when we find out where we belong. Now, he comes into some specific areas of relationship here, and in particular uses this word submit or submission or subject. It's all the same Greek word. And we saw last week in verse 21 where he gives the basic rule, submitting to one another in the fear of God. This is a commandment given to everyone. And the word, the Greek word for submit is, a, is the word hupotasso. Tasso means to arrange or to line up, and hupo means under. The idea, and the word was used in, as a military term when the armies would march. And if you've ever been in a group of, you know, in a marching band or in the military or cheerleaders or whatever, you understand what this basically means because in order to stay in formation while you're moving, everyone has to be aware of where everyone else is. You can't just march perfectly and expect everyone else to be in the same place where you. So the, the way you learn to march is to watch the people out here vertically and the, those horizontally and to look at the diagonals. And as you're looking around, maybe you're playing a horn or whatever, but you're also just watching your angles using peripheral vision. And if everyone does that, it's a mutual thing, and it's amazing how we can fit together and, and work together. But this submission really only works if everyone's doing it. And so Paul starts right off by saying, I'm telling you to do something, and I'm saying that it works when everyone does it. Remember, verse 21 is simply the last of the fruit evidence of being filled with the Spirit. So if we're filled with the Spirit, it's going to be characterized by our submitting to each other, by our watching our connections with each other to make sure that we blend together, to make sure that we can collectively look like what we're supposed to look like in life. But then Paul goes into these sections coming up, and, and often without understanding the nature of biblical submission, these verses can sound like, um, like they're being kind of hard on a person who is subservient to another. We, we lose the mutual submission and we go, oh, wives are to be subject to their husbands. You know, that just means that the husband is the boss and the wife just does whatever he says and you just got to take it. And then it, but think about this. For one thing, it, it has to mean something differently than that because in the first century, frankly, a wife did just have to take it. A wife was like the property of her husband. So it would be kind of ridiculous for him to make a command like this if all it meant was you let him call the shots because he was going to call the shots already. That was their culture. And when you think about the next two categories of people that he tells to submit, children, submit to your parents. Well, especially in those days, children didn't have a, you know, a chance to do anything other than that. A rebellious child could get stoned in, that, in those 
days. And so, yeah, today children can threaten to call social services, they can get emancipated, they can report you to the neighbors, they can do... But in those days, there was none of that. So submit to your parents doesn't just mean do whatever they say because they already had to do that. There was something... And then the same thing with servants and masters. That's the other group that he says, servants, submit to your masters. And we're going to go through those and talk about them some more. But what I want you to recognize at least is He's telling those people who are in a certain role that there is a choice that they can make. There is something that they can do that, that's not about you let the other person just be the boss and let them walk all over you. But there's something in the heart. There's something that he is getting at here as we go through it. I think we'll see it more clearly. That's, that's much more than just saying you're the boss. Now, you know, let me just say this, because I have heard these verses so misused, especially by men who want an excuse for being a jerk, who want an excuse for treating their wives like dirt, who are mean and abusive and awful, and then when the wife has just about had enough, and usually the way it goes is the wife gets away for a weekend and just never comes back. She's like, why should I live like this? Then the husbands come running to the church and say, I want you to sick them and nail her with the scriptures so she knows she has to take it. She has to let me treat her this way. And let me just say, as a pastor, there isn't any, don't bother with me on that one. Find somebody else who will play that out because the truth is I am not going to to give any man an excuse to be a jerk to his wife, and then somehow I'll hit you over the head with God. That's not what he wants. And we can, boy, when we get to next week and see the husband's responsibilities, we'll understand this much better. But right off the bat, I just want to say this isn't that, you know, the man's bigger and stronger and he controls the money, so therefore just deal with it. Because that's not the heart of the passage here. Now let's look here. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice your own husbands. You don't have to submit to anybody. It's not a male-female thing. It's you're committed to this person, and they are your spouse. Husbands, if you're married, you have a wife, and they're your wife. Now, you could go, yeah, but when we got married, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I, you know, If I had known then what I know now, things would have been a lot different. Hey, nobody knew what they were getting into. Let's face it, none of us did. And, and an awful lot of what God uses, love is blind, and he knows that. and so that's, why he, that's why he gets us together, and then here we are. Whoa, we're married. What, how, how did that happen? But that's yours. And your future satisfaction and happiness and fruitfulness and godliness in every way is intricately connected with that person who is yours. If you're married, that's God's word to you. This is your own husband or your own wife. And he, but he says, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, 
it's not, he's not saying that there's this hierarchy where, you know, you submit to your husband and then he'll hear from God. Everyone is commanded to submit to the Lord. If you are a Christian, your first responsibility is to answer to him, is to line your life up with his. That is over and above anything that you do to try to please your spouse or anything else. You please God first. And, but what he's saying is, Wives, in the same way, in the same sort of relationship, how you're in submission to God, which you're called to be, in the same way, take seriously that relationship that he has given you with your spouse and allow yourself to participate in that relationship in a way that will work, that will be fruitful. Now, as he goes on, he says, For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So now he uses an analogy of the way the church is in submission to our head of the body, which is Jesus Christ. And he says there's a similar relationship that happens when a man is the head of the household, the man is the head of the family, and, and the wife is to understand that as he is the head, it's a similar thing to the relationship that the church has with Jesus Christ. Now you go, yeah, but it's easy to submit to Jesus. He's perfect. Exactly. This isn't a complete you know, corollary, but it's an analogy. But while we're thinking about that, we'll learn a lot about what he expects and what he's telling us here if we look at the example of Christ in the church. How does he lead the church? How is Jesus the head? And next week when we get to the man's part, which is a much more significant part, we'll see, as he says, you know, Jesus gave himself. He had that much love. Jesus unconditionally loved and sacrificed himself. He became the head of the church by dying for the church. He didn't become the head of the church by smashing the church into submission. He, came, he became the head of the church by going first in his love, in his devotion and dedication, in his sacrifice. And talk about submission. Talk about adjusting yourself to get along with us. Jesus himself came down from heaven because we needed a Savior and yeah, he's the savior of the body. How did he do that? He laid his body on the line. He gave himself. And, and so, in what ways do we submit to him? In what ways does the church come into a relationship with him? Well, see, if Jesus wanted to, he has all the force in the universe. And so if he wanted to, he could tell us everything that we're supposed to do and then just force us to do it. As soon as you step out, out of line from what he has told you, he could cause high-voltage electricity to pulsate through your body, and you'd, you'd learn pretty quick. And, but it, it, the truth is, okay, submit to him in everything, but does Jesus tell us everything that the church is even supposed to do. I'm kind of shocked at how little information Jesus really gave us about how to be the church. Now, 
you know, often people talk about the Bible as if it's some rule book whereby you live. You read the Bible, you don't get that idea at all. I mean, he leaves so much up to us. And therefore, there's, you look at churches, they're obviously not clones of each other. Each church kind of finds their own interpretation of what God wants, and, and it seems like it's okay with Jesus that different churches do things different ways, it, because he's allowed that to continue throughout history, and, and he doesn't knock you down every time you get out of line. He doesn't even, I mean, in simple things, even when you read all the epistles, after Jesus was gone into heaven, you know, and Paul and John and Peter and everybody wrote, James wrote all these letters, and even then there's not a lot of specific stuff about how the church is supposed to work. Um, he doesn't even describe the role of an elder or a deacon or a deaconess or pastor. He, he, he talks about those roles, and all he says about them is, you're to be a person of character, says, if you're going to fulfill that role, here's the kind of person you need to be. And he's very strong about that. But it doesn't seem like Jesus is interested in micromanaging the church. He gives us an awful lot of latitude. He gives us the opportunity to be led of the Spirit. And he doesn't want to jam us into a mold or push us. The way he leads us is by going first and then loving us. And then when we mess up, he forgives us. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. He, he has that unconditional love and that limit, un, unlimited grace and mercy and forgiveness. And that's how he runs the church. Now, that's a lot different picture than what most people have of the I'm the head of the family. That means I call all the shots. Now, being the head of the family means something, and there are certain leadership roles that we need to play within the family. You need to allow the head of the household to be the head of the household, but we're going to get into so much more of that next week as we look at, at the man's role and responsibilities. What I really want to focus in on right now is, is the woman's responsibility. And what God is emphasizing here, what Paul is sharing with the Ephesians in this role is ladies, women, wives, you need to make sure that you are living your life in submission. Now, I know that in those days, you didn't have any choice but to do what the guy said, or he could just throw you out. He could just say, I mean, forget alimony and child support and all that stuff. In those days, if a guy was just fed up with you, he could say, get out of my tent, get out of my tent, get out of my tent. Three times and you're just gone. No rights, no, no you know, support or anything like that. I'm sure marriages would be a little different today if it was that easy. But see, he was speaking into that culture, but he's saying, women, line yourselves up with, cooperate with, adjust your life to that man that God has given you. And this is really important for wives to learn to do. Because the truth is, when you get married, you have certain illusions about your husband. Because we've been faking that in order to get you to marry us. But <laughs> now you get married, and it's like, whoa, this isn't what I thought. 
But then there are plenty of people who will tell you that, oh, you can use your feminine wiles and you can manipulate this guy and eventually you can fix him. You can turn him into something that's more like what you had in mind in the first place. And our society blasts us with all of these romantic notions that basically tell you that, you know what, you know, women, if you treat your husband in a certain way, and you know what he wants, and you use that, and you can manipulate him, and you can turn him into someone who understands you completely, who just, you're on the same wavelength, you have this deep connection, they're your best friend, they, they just, they love to sit and watch chick flicks with you, and they do, and it's like, yeah, our society kind of makes you think that that's what's going to happen, but I hope it doesn't happen. It's a tragedy if you do turn your husband into a chick, you know, because it's like, <laughs> that's not what you need. What you might think is that you need someone just like you, but what you need is someone to compliment you, for someone to, to match up with you, to be different than you are. And in order to learn to live with someone who's really different than you are, somebody has to make adjustments. And in some ways, it's probably easier for women to make those adjustments, and that's probably why it comes first. A part of this is just kind of cultural um, you know, factors that we grow up with. But the truth is, it's, you know, a woman can, can compromise and connect with a man in some ways easier than a man can compromise and connect with a woman. Like, it's easier for a woman to enjoy, you know, the Lakers going to be playing tonight, kind of a masculine sort of thing. But, you know, some women will kind of get into it. You know, and you hope they get into it enough that they enjoy it with you, but not so much that, that they won't go ahead and, and get the munchies in the kitchen while you're watching a big play. <laughs> but think about this. How would you feel if someone, if you have a daughter, and someone says, boy, your daughter's a real tomboy. She's a real stud. Okay? As opposed to if somebody says about your son, he's just very effeminate. <laughs> See, and, and some of that's just totally unfair, cultural homophobia or whatever, but the reality is women seem to have a greater capacity to relate on a broader realm than men are, and that's something that's to their credit. But it's something that you've got to use if you're going to ever be in a relationship. Now, men aren't left off the hook, as we'll see next week, trust me. But unless well, I'm going away um, on a motorcycle trip this week, so if I don't come back, sorry. <laughs> but, uh, but um, you know, this mandate for women to line themselves up, to be in submission, the idea is make adjustments. Now, it's the same thing. I, I mentioned in marching bands and soldiers marching and things like that, but... In all athletics, you have to do that. You know, you have to make adjustments. A good player, and you know, I hate to use a bunch of sports analogies talking to women, but you know, it's all, I'm just a guy, that's all I know. So I'm sure there are some great sewing analogies too, but, <laughs> but you know, a good quarterback can throw the ball, maybe he throws it right where he wants to throw it, 
But a good receiver better be there to adjust to that route. If a, in basketball, if somebody throws an alley-oop pass, the guy who's coming flying in there needs to adjust where he is so he's there in the right place. Now, those kinds of cooperative efforts, and I could, you know, there are tons of analogies. Seriously, if you're a, a teacher, you understand. You have to adjust your teaching to how kids learn, right? I mean, a bad teacher is somebody who just gets up there and they just say their lesson the way it's you know, out of the book and they just expect you to learn. But a good teacher will be watching their students, will be making adjustments and applying that which they want them to know in a way that'll be communicated well. It's one reason why you know, we, have, um, you know, we have classrooms that are so large and a lot of people will now more and more kids are branded as being as if they have learning disabilities. Uh, there's no such thing really as a learning disability. There are really only teaching disabilities. There are some kids that we aren't as good at teaching as we are others because we either don't have the time or the effort or the training or whatever. But in every relationship, it takes adjustment. And, and this is something that we see throughout the scriptures. And this is something that's crucially important in a marriage. Are you willing to make the adjustments necessary to get along with another person, to work together with them? Now, it is mutual, and all of these things, these one another things that we were talking about last week, this is only going to work if, if both partners are willing to catch on to this and, and to do it. Um, if they won't, it's going to fail. One person can't make a relationship. You can for a little while, but ultimately it breaks down. I remember a couple of years ago, Pastor Chuck and Kay had their 60th wedding anniversary. And I was sitting in, there, in Chuck's office, and, and I said, so what's the secret to being married for 60 years? And Chuck said, you know, the first 40 years were pretty rough. <laughs> I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> But he said, and then we just quit trying to change each other. And then it got great, and it's been great ever since. And that's what Paul is saying here. And he's using wives because typically wives will be the first ones to recognize that a relationship isn't what it ought to be. And when you recognize that the relationship isn't what it ought to be, you have a choice. You can either complain about it, and gripe about it and make your husband just wish he had never formed a relationship with you in the first place or beat him down so much that he curls into a little ball and doesn't, can't even try. I mean, you could do that. It's not working for anybody, but that's what a lot of people do. Or you can manipulate and form and shape and mold them and bribe him and everything else to get him to be more like what it works for you. Or you can accept reality and say, how am I going to make the best of this relationship? How am I going to be the, make the best of who my husband is? You really don't want your husband to pretend to be something that he isn't. Now, there are also there are a lot of relationships, most of them, where the two people in the relationship are maybe in a little different spots spiritually. Because we tend to grow in different ways and, and we tend to, you know, maybe one person has more discretionary time than the other. Maybe they have greater levels of training or whatever. And, and so we don't just grow like this spiritually. We tend to do this kind of a thing. As soon as 
you're making your spouse feel like they're not as good as you are. You're making them feel like they're not measuring up as a Christian husband or as a Christian wife. You just quench them. You choke the spiritual life right out of them. And it all comes down to this one concept that I think is central in the Scriptures. Paul said, I learned to be content. I learned to be satisfied right where I am. And so I learned how to be abased, and I learned how to abound, but I figured the secret is to be happy where I am, to make the best of where I am. That is, in many ways, the key to life, is that you are in a particular situation. Can you figure out how to make the best of that situation? Because the only alternative is to find yourself in a situation and be desperate to change that situation. And changing that situation usually means changing other people. And God gives those other people the right to decide for themselves when and how they're going to change. And he gives them varying degrees of success based on being filled with the Spirit and things like that. So if you are going to live your life trying to make other people be what you want them to be in order for them, you to be satisfied, you're going to destroy the people that you're with, and you're going to be frustrated yourself, and it very rarely will ever work. And Paul figured it out, you know, when, when again, he said, I've learned to be content. And the time to learn to be content is now, not down the road, not once your spouse gets it together. Not once the economic situation improves or we get more or we do more or you know, we get the kids out of the house or we do. The time to learn to be content is right now. And that should be the testimony of a Christian life. People who find themselves plopped in a situation and we go, I have a lot to be thankful for. I'm grateful for what I have. I appreciate the people that God has brought into my life. Uh, this that's what submission is. But in order to get there, you have to be willing to, to compromise yourself. You have to be willing to make adjustments yourself so that you will ideally fit with the person that God has placed in your life. You know, and it's not, in, in some ways, it's a bad philosophy, but Stephen Stills wrote that song, Love the One You're With. And there's a degree to which, believe it or not, it's true. Because if God has placed you with someone and you are committed to them for the rest of your life, you may not be able to make them into the fantasy that you had of what a relationship would be, but you can adjust yourself to where you make the best of the relationship that you have. Contentment is never getting what you want. Contentment is always wanting what you've got. And there's no area in which that is more true than in marriage because you'll completely defeat what God wants to do if you're trying to change another person. You don't have the right to change them. You don't, listen, if Jesus doesn't come in here and force the church to change, then where do you get off thinking that you can force your spouse to change? For one thing, you can't do it. The one thing that you'll be successful at is either they'll retreat into a little ball or they'll just bail on you. And then you'll be feeling sorry for yourself because, oh man, I was just trying to be godly. And no, accept reality. Ask God to help you to see 
exactly what you're dealing with. And then you go to the Lord, you listen to the Holy Spirit, and you go, how can I make the best of this relationship? And there are lots of great examples of people who manage to adjust to a relationship with someone who's really, really different than they are. And yet they're able to do it. They're able to make that adjustment because God helps them. And that's what Paul is saying to wives here. Wives, deal with reality. Submit to your husbands in the same way that you submit to the Lord. The Lord doesn't force you to, but I love it when I see people who have been able to make those adjustments. I think sometimes we're afraid to accept our spouse the way they are because we think that they're never going to change. And we really would like them to change. We would like them to grow. But you know what? That's not your problem. That's not your job. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. And he's really good. Sometimes it'll take a long time. You know, I've seen, I've seen sometimes, and I've seen it both ways with women and with men, where one spouse is like really on fire for the Lord and the other one's just kind of not into it hey, if you just keep cramming it down their throat, it's not going to make them into it. But what you have to do is find out, okay, what do we have in this relationship that's beneficial? We have fun. We have kids. We love each other. So often, marriages break down because people are banging heads trying to force the other person to be who they are. But if, if women would accept their husband's the way that they are, and, and if men would do the same with their wives and we quit trying to change each other, then you can focus on what you do have rather than on what you don't have. And that is a powerful change agent in the long run, but it doesn't even matter if they change or not. It's okay. All they have to do is be who they are. You don't want them pretending to be something that they aren't. Accept the person that God has given you. You've pledged your life to them. Now, again, I, there are times when two people just cannot get along because one or the other just won't cooperate. Jesus said Moses granted divorce because of the hardness of people's hearts. So if you want to stay married, soften your heart and pray that God will help your spouse do the same. Many times when you're married to somebody who has a soft heart, a hard heart, it's because you made it that way by trying to cram them into your mold. And so he says, and again, we're going to really pick on the guys when we get down to what he says about the husbands. And the truth is, the men have a much greater role to play in this than the women. But what the women have to get over is this romantic ideal that somehow you can fix the guy. You know, the guy you married, he's going to be a guy. And that's why you married him. You used to think that was okay. You know, somehow you're wanting them to be something that they aren't. That's never going to lead to intimacy. That's never going to lead to closeness. But man, what freedom is there in a relationship when both partners, each partner just accepts the other one and says, there are certain adjustments that I need to make in order to have a good relationship with you. For me, one of the adjustments I had to make was, I'm a chronically messy person. I like having things scattered all over the place. But I realized my wife can't handle that at all. It really just drives her nuts. And so we kind of compromised. It's interesting where it's like, okay, look, the garage is mine and my study is mine, but I'll keep all the rest of the house that's yours. 
as neat as I, as I possibly can. And that works. You know, just recently, the Lord's been showing me, interestingly, some of the reasons why I keep as much stuff as I keep and why I like doing that clutter. But it's, it's been a long time. I'm, you know, 55, almost 56 years old before I'm starting to understand even things that happened a long time ago that have caused me to be chronically messy. If my wife had waited for that to happen, she would have given up a long time ago. At some point, she also had to just decide, okay, Dave's a slob. Now, God's dealing with me, and, and I'm seeing that change, and Lord willing, a transformation is going to happen, but it has to happen from inside. I've tried to change for my wife. It just doesn't work very well. It, it's phony. It's not natural. You have to let God change your spouse. You have to trust him to do what he does. Your job is to accept them the way they are, to love them, to let them be themselves, and, and to realize that, you know, I mean, can you honestly say right now that if my relationship never gets any better than this, I have been totally blessed? I have just been, to, you know, our relationship has been a complete blessing in my life, and, I, and I'll praise God for it if it never gets any better. Because if you don't feel that way, you've got some issues with letting go of your fantasies and accepting life the way it really is, and you're not helping each other when you do that. And so, women, maybe you are at a disadvantage. Culturally, in some ways, you probably are. It's sad, though, how many single people don't want to get married because they see how lousy we do marriage that they just like, eh, if that's what it's like, I don't want any part of it. But in reality, our charge as those who are married, who God has given us a spouse, is to show everyone else out there that this is fun. This really works. It's really a blessing. It's, it's good. It's satisfying. It's fulfilling. But the only reason that's going to, the only way that's going to happen for us is if we can adjust and make those adjustments as we're moving down the field, make those adjustments as we're coming into different phases of our lives together, make adjustments according to our spouse's mood and hormones and all those sorts of things, according to their problems and issues that they have from the past, the baggage that they carry. Okay, look, deal with reality. Women, look at your husband. He is what he is. Be thankful for him. Accept him the way that he is. Let him call the shots. Let him be the leader. Now, if he doesn't take leadership, that's okay. He'll figure it out. But don't force your ideas on him. Just, I mean, most of the things that we discuss, the outcome isn't even important. It's how we get there. I'm convinced that 99% of all the arguments that we have, it doesn't even matter who's right or wrong. It just matters how you deal with it. I always just tell people, don't fight, flip a coin. That's how important your opinion is. It really is. But we can either celebrate the gift that God has given us with our families, or we can fight against it, and it's not going to make it any better anyway. Please look at that spouse that God has given you and be thankful for him. Bless God for him. Accept him the way he is. Try to build him up. You're, 
maybe a lot of times women don't understand how much a husband needs a cheerleader in his life. I'm not talking about another cheerleader, I'm talking about you, okay? <laughs> Guys don't get any ideas here. It's exactly what I need as a cheerleader. No, but just somebody to believe in you and to support you and to encourage you. And that value that you place in your spouse is something that you yourself will benefit from in spades. Now, for all of us, submission, hupotasso, lining ourselves up, it affects every area of our lives. If you can learn to adjust to others, you'll have a lot of friends. And those friends will be there for you, and they'll support you, and they'll love you. But if you're stubborn, and it's your way or the highway, and you won't give, and you won't compromise, and you can't accept people being certain ways, you exclude people, you're going to have a lot of time to think about it by yourself. Because your life is going to be a lonely and a sad place. There's nothing more tragic than married people who are alone. They're, they're in a marriage, but they don't have a connection. They don't, there's not an intimacy that's there. And a lot of times that started because no one wanted to make the adjustments. Submitting yourselves one to another, it's a part of being filled with the Spirit. It's making the adjustments to reality, making the best of the situation that you have, and allowing God to do what He wants to do. We have all of eternity in heaven to have a perfect life. But you're not going to have a perfect one down here right now, but you can make it much better if you'll just quit obsessing on your fantasy and instead you'll just accept the person that God has given you and, and figure out how you can make the best of a relationship and with that person. And again, it may mean that a lot of your spiritual fellowship that you'd love to have with your spouse, maybe you need to find that with you know, your girlfriends or with a women's study or with books and studies and other things that you do. That's okay. I mean, don't, don't, you can't squeeze blood out of a turnip. Don't try to strangle everything that you need out of your husband because you'll just strangle him. He'll die. He won't have anything then to give you. Some of you look like you like that notion. <laughs> to go along with my shirt, if your husband's tapping out, let him up. <laughs> give him a break. And next week, we'll pick on the guys. Let's pray. Lord, when we open your word, we, we would love to have it carry neat little formulas that would fix everything. But so much of what your word is an acknowledgement of this fallen world and of fallen people and of the fact that we're going to need grace all the time because we fail all the time. And God, I pray for the women who are married, who are in this room, that you would just give them an extra dose of grace. That they would release their husbands from having to be something that they aren't. And that the women would really focus on building up and encouraging the men that you've given them. And I pray that also those of us men who are married would 
learn how to fit in with our wives and to, to enjoy them and to bless the differences that there are between us. Lord, I know how glorifying it is to you when we get along. And I know what it takes for us to get along, and it's submitting ourselves one to another. So teach us all that that entails. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ, we haven't really talked about it that much, but it's where all this comes from. Being in a proper relationship with Jesus Christ will enable